Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known here on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and you're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond Indie Radio. I'm here today with Dr. Joe Pesh um, to discuss the classic Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. So happy you're here. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Should I address you as Dr. Pesh? Uh, you don't need to do that. You could call me Dr. Joe or Joe or how, how, however you would like. I like Dr. Joe. Um, okay. Your name is spelled P-E-S-C-E. That Pesh. Is, is that, where, where's that come from? That's Italian. Okay. Pesh. Pesce. Okay, Pesce. Okay, so uh, thank you for coming. I, you were, uh, you're up in Northern Virginia. Yes, that's so correct. You down to the WRIR studios. For those who don't know Dr. Joe... He's an astrophysicist who is primarily interested in the environments of galaxies hosting supermassive black holes, also known as active galactic nuclei. His day job is as a program director at the National Science Foundation, wow, where he oversees program development for five astronomical facilities, including the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, aka ALMA, in South America, and the Very Long Base Array, and of course, three others. Um, He's been involved in over 100 astrophysical publications, and his resume is deeply impressive, including a degree from Cambridge. Today, in addition to his work with the NSF, Dr. Joe teaches courses in astronomy at GMU in Northern Virginia and the University of Colorado. His mission in life is to inspire more people across the world who are interested in space to deepen their connection to the cosmos. He's also, of course, a lifelong Trekkie. Dr. Joe, so great to have you here in person. Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. This is my first in-person interview in so long, so I got to get used to, again, actually getting real person eye contact. Um, I'm really grateful that you're deigning to share scientific knowledge um, with us laymen, but let me just ask, why did you choose this episode of Star Trek? Well, so you know, l let's step back and say, why Star Trek? And mm. so Star Trek is is basically why I am who I am, what I am, right? It, mm. it was what inspired me to go into astronomy. Probably not the very first thing, uh, because I've been interested in astronomy since I was five years old. But very shortly thereafter, uh, I, I got bitten by the Star Trek bug. And uh, we're talking about the original series here, although I love them all. Uh, but the original series is my first love. And so, you know, why, why, why? Well, you know, it's, it's a timeless uh, uh, love affair with the future, I mm. think. And it shows us a future that's very positive, yes. uh, you know, a uh, post-monetary system where there's true equality. Uh, and, you know, that's touched on in a number of episodes that, you know, we're all equal. And, and yet, uh, in, in a number of episodes, the human nature comes out where biases appear. Mm. And they're brought up and they're discussed. And, you know, this is mid to late 1960s. And that was really quite, quite advanced for the time. Yes. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful jewel and I can't speak of it highly enough. Um, it ages well, uh, yeah. you, it, it's ageless, right? Obviously it's set in the future, so you can't, you, you can't see it as a 1960s, uh, program. It's a future program. And I mean, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, most of the episodes are fantastic. In fact, when you asked me which which episode I'd like to pick, 
that was very, very difficult for me. Yeah, I know. It's I had a, to push. Yes, yes, indeed you <laughs> did. It was it was like choosing your favorite child, right? Yeah, there is no such thing. I understand. In, indeed. <laughs> and and in fact, I you know, I, I, I might admit that this is maybe not my most favorite episode, but it's a fantastic episode. And I picked it because it I think it epitomizes what Star Trek is about. Hmm. And it shows all of those elements that, that make Star Trek so so great to me. And so again, as you said, that that episode is The Trouble with Tribbles. Yes. It's funny you say that because Gene Roddenberry was really against this episode pretty much throughout production. He didn't want this to epitomize Star Trek because he was very intent on it being serious. Um, We'll definitely get more into that. But I really appreciate what you say about Star Trek as a whole. And it's so rare right now in our day and age that to have sci-fi that is inspiring and positive right? A, a positive view of humanity where humanity's goal is to do good and uh, was extremely, you know, representative of the future, kind of represented the future that the world was working towards. Gene Roddenberry knew that we would have racial diversity and gender equity um, and presented a world where we could see that. And I think that helped a lot in working towards it. I, I watched um, this amazing documentary about the woman who played Lieutenant Uhura called Woman in Motion. Oh my goodness. Turns out that she actually helped <laughs> recruit um, a more diverse group of astronauts for NASA for years. So, like, Gene Roddenberry really did have an impact. Um, but The Trouble with Tribbles is one of the funnest episodes ever of all of any of those seasons. So if you haven't seen Star Trek at all, turn off this podcast and go watch it. <laughs> or turn off your radio and go watch it. You probably know what the baseline of Star Trek is, but I'm going to give you a quick overview of the episode before we get into it. Airing first in December 29th, 1967, The Trouble with Tribbles is a fan favorite, became a smash hit episode of Star Trek, the original series. It's episode 15 of season two. It was written by the animal-loving David Gerald, who was 23 at the time, and directed by Joseph Pevney. The episode follows the crew of the Starship Enterprise, who respond to a class one distress call at a space station, only for Spock and Kirk to find out they are being asked to play security guards for large quantities of GMO grain. While on shore leave, Lieutenant Uhura buys a seemingly harmless furball called a Tribble, takes it back to the ship. Amidst growing tensions with Klingons on the station, the crew of the Enterprise find that Tribbles repro- reproduce rapidly. A brood of one produces a brood of ten every twelve hours. The ship is shortly overcome with the cooing furry balls, posing an existential though very cute threat to the ship and the space station below. Despite its overt humor, the show became a beloved classic this episode did, generally considered one of the top 10 must-watch episodes of the original series. So yes, we will have spoilers. What happens in the episode, we will spoil, but the focus of this show is on craft as well as content. There are studies that show light spoilage actually increase your enjoyment. I actually would say, you know, if you've never watched Star Trek before, this might be a really good one to start with. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so, yes. Yeah, kind of not too heavy on the long philosophical discussions, which I love personally. Go ahead. But yet they're there, right? So, oh, yeah. So the, the underlying, this is a, a lighthearted um, uh, episode with a bit of comedy, right? But there's that underlying tension, which is, of course, that this uh, planet that needs the, the particular type of grain that is being stored at the space station is of strategic importance to right. both the Federation and the Klingon Empire. Right. And I, that's why when I was watching it with my friend, we were laughing at the end. The ending is just so absurd. Um, I don't want to spoil it too early. So let's talk about the philosophy then. What, what is the philosophical kind of 
backdrop to this episode? What do you think are the themes there? So, you know, the, the, the Klingons who have appeared in, in previous episodes are uh, an alien race that is one of many, of course, in the Star Trek universe, but is being um, more on display here. And in previous episodes, we've had uh, uh, significant serious difficulties with the Klingons and, and a, a much more advanced race had to step in and, and set up a peace treaty between uh, the, the Federation, yes. uh, where our, our characters are, are from, and, and the Klingon Empire. And so again, this, this episode uh, is looking at the linchpin of this particularly important uh, planet and an important location for, for both uh, organizations, and the control of which is of, of vital importance, apparently. Mm. We don't get much into that, but, but that is the premise. And, you know, and then you have uh, a subterfuge here with Klingon spies and, mm-hmm. and all sorts of things going on and, and um, uh, attempts to, to cause problems on, on, the, on the larger geopolitical scale, if we, if we can say that. And now in the 60s, 1967, intermediary planets acting as strategic linchpins between two large powers was kind of a big deal, yes, right? Indeed. It was on the, the Cold War was, was alive and well. Yes. Um, and so a lot of episodes reflect that, whether it, you know, it intended to or not, I think. Yes. Um, w- uh, what do you love about this episode? What stands out to you? Well, so uh, all the main characters are there, except for George Takai, who, who plays right. Sulu, and he's away filming uh, Green Berets. Green Berets, right? yeah. Yes, for, for most of season two. <laughs> uh, this is midway, as you pointed out, this is episode 15 of mm-hmm. second season. So it's midway between uh, the three seasons, more or less. So all the main characters are there. Um, they're, the, the characters, I think all of them are nicely developed, but not too much. We get an immediate understanding of their personalities, even the, the secondary characters that, that come to play, um, Cyrano Jones, the, the traitor and the bartender who is, is merely a, a, a bartender and doesn't have much of a role, but, but those characters are, are developed nicely, uh, in, in a nice Star Trekian way, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and maybe even more so in this episode than, than in other episodes. So we really get the feeling for who these people are. And, and so I like that. I like the, uh, the, the comedic nature so that it is different for the series, but it's, it's a fun comedy, uh, Kirk William Shatner is 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 always the over the top actor, and yes. his acting is always over the top, and it's it's much parodied over the over the the decades. But that comes to the fore here, and both his annoyance, uh, which is from the very beginning, because they they are called with this uh, emergency call from the from the star base, right? And it's it's really not. Uh, quite the emergency that that not call. that he sees not that he sees that's mm. right it's the bureaucrat from the federation who is you know causing the issues so that's nice as well you get the bureaucrat from you know the central the central government and you get the uh, star base commander who's out in the middle of nowhere and you get this the starship commander who you know is is really the one that's in charge of all of this and there's that interplay between the bureaucracy that is the federation and the people who are outside of that bureaucracy trying to uh, avoid dealing with bureaucracy. And so that's kind of a fun interplay, too, I oh, think. I wonder if you could make a connection between the overflowing population of Tribbles and the, the way that bureaucracy can gum up our, our you know, the pipelines between us, right? The, it feels like the Tribbles are fairly, fairly representative, but they make the episode 
the fun of the episode is kind of refreshing, right? There's a lot of very serious undertones to most of the episodes. I look at Star Trek as a series of morality plays, at least the way Gene Roddenberry wrote it. He's like our modern Aesop, right? Um, and so there's not as clear of a morality tale in this one. Like, don't buy pets from random men on, on starships, I guess. Don't buy creatures. But it's funny you mentioned his acting. So, yes, you're right. Often parodied William Shatner's acting. But, you know, if you're a Star Trek fan, especially the original series, you have a soft spot for it. I wonder now if they, when they were, when the Klingons made those, uh, I don't know what the word is. They were being extremely rude. They were making some mm. rude comments. They called him a tin-plated, overbearing, swaggering dictator with delusions of godhood. Do you think there was a little bit of criticism of Shatner in there as well? Probably, Probably. yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and, and of course, you know, this is the interplay that and, and the following scene where uh, after after the action uh, where where Scotty attacks the starts the fight with with the Klingons on uh, in the station and then after when when uh, Kirk is is interrogating him to figure, find out what happened that that's I think that's the best part for me number one uh, Scotty is is my favorite character in in the Star Trek universe why I so I'm an Anglophile and ah, okay. so there's that aspect right but but Scotty is is that quiet intelligence, right? Yeah. You see him as the as the engineer. He's the engineer that's down in the in the engine room and you know away from everything. But yet, you, you could argue, and I would argue, that he's in intelligence. He's second only to Spock. Hmm. Spock is, of course, the epitome of the intelligence of intelligence, and and yeah, because he calculates a number to a million digits yes, in well, front of everyone he, he's, to show off. He's the biological calculator, right? <laughs> right, right, but, right. But Scott. Uh, not necessarily in this episode, but in other episodes, you see that intelligence. And and he's not the equal to Spock, but he's half a second behind. Mm. And uh, on the episode Galileo 7, for example, uh, uh, which is a great episode as well from the from the first season, um, Spock does an action and no one understands why he does it. And, and as I say, half a second later, uh, Scotty realizes what's going on and he's the only one that kind of understands and mm. then he explains it to everybody else. And you see this time and time again. He's very, very intelligent. He's nerdy, right? So in this episode, uh, he doesn't want to go on shore leave in, in the space station because he would rather read his technical journals in his room. Nerd. And and, and who wouldn't want to, right? And, I mean, if those technical <laughs> journals were telling you how to transport human beings back and forth, I, I could get it. Yeah, you're right. But he's restrained. He's yes. a restrained intelligence. He's not self He's not full of himself. And so I can see why you would like this episode as a Scotty fan because you see him release the beast a little bit and and the thing that gets him under he's able to hold back any kind of criticism of of people but when someone criticizes the ship he can't hold it back anymore and the fight is just classic star trek you know winging side punches and people throwing over the chairs um fun fun fact about that part you might you might already know the the tables break but the chairs don't you know that one because they had rented the chairs i like i love all the, the ways that they have to work around the budget in a way that you just don't see on any other episodes of Star Trek in any other seasons or, or iterations of the show. Oh, no, that's right. Because they they were fighting tremendous pushback from the studio even after the, how successful the first season was. And it's just funny to me, that, like the fact that the Tribbles are made of carpet from another set, like like they're made of just like whatever they could find, right? Like it's just, um, it's great. I think, I think limitations can be a really good creative force. Um, but yeah, no, I, I find... 
I find any time we can spend with Scotty is well spent time. Yes, indeed. Know? Indeed. Yeah. And, and you know, to your, your point where he's insulted by the insult to the starship and not the captain. And of course, yeah. Captain Kirk, when he's calling him out and trying to figure out what's going on, he assumes, of course, egotistically, that the fight was started because uh, the Klingons insulted him, right? And... But no, as, as Scotty points out, we're big enough to take a few insults. But yet, you know, you insult my ship. And, and, and yet, so Kirk is annoyed with this, right? And he's annoyed from the very beginning, as I said. But yet, you can see that he appreciates Scotty in that regard. And there's, um, in, in watching to prepare for our interview today, I don't know, the hundredth time that I've seen this, <laughs> I saw something that I hadn't noticed before. And it is that... Um, there's the scene where where Kirk gets the explanation of what happened, right? And he sends Scotty to his room. And Scotty is, of course, happy with this because he can continue reading his technical journals, right? right? So it's not a punishment. Uh, it, it cuts to a, a different scene between Spock and, and Bones, the, the doctor. And, of course, that's interesting because it shows the non-emotion of Spock and the emotion of Bones. And that's always played off throughout the series. And we see it here. Um, yes. where they're discussing, you know, why, why do we like Tribbles and, and Spock can't see any reason because they're useless. And, and Bones, of course, says, well, that's, you know, we love them because we're emotional beings. Yes. And then immediately after that, there, it cuts to a scene where Kirk is coming back to the bridge, obviously from his interaction with, with Scotty. And he punches the air and it's clear that he's reliving his interaction with Scotty. And... In, in a kind of a humorous way, he sees, you know, Scotty uh, uh, ignoring the insult to him, Kirk, and, and yet the insult to the, to the ship. And, and so he appreciates that as, you know, that's just old Scotty being Scotty. Yeah. And, and it's clear that that's what's happening as he's walking into the bridge. I <laughs> <laughs> Scotch. Uh, he's, yeah, he's such a great character. So it's just it's something interesting to me that I'm thinking about is like the reason that this episode is beloved and the reason that Star Trek Four which I also did an episode on Noah Page's Beloved, at first seems like because they are lighthearted. And my theory now that I'm coming around to it is, in fact, it's the lighthearted nature of the content that allows us to see a different side of the characters. I think that's what we like because um, seeing McCoy gently stroking a tribble and uh, like finally admitting that it's not for any kind of research purpose, right? Or um, of course, Spock pretending that it's something that he can't interact with, right? Like the way that it, I think it's the lens that gives you a, a different look at the characters that makes you enjoy it. But it is funny to me that, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of pushback on the humor. However, all of the reports from the filming of it say, you know, everyone said they were having such a fun time. People were laughing to the point of tears. Like it's, you can kind of feel that fun coming through. And I think that's another part of it. But my question for you is like, you know, this shows the lighter side of Star Trek. And, you know, as I said, Roddenberry was very wary of making it a comedy. What do you think as a scientist, as an astrophysicist, where do you see the role of humor in comedy, where, the role of humor in sci-fi and in science in general? Where Where is the line? Well, you know, humor is very important, I, I think. Mm. And it's, it's very important to me personally. So uh, I think there's a role for humor in everything. And, mm -hmm. you know, as you point out, it's, it's a way of relieving tensions. Uh, it's a way of showing, showing a situation in a different light. And, and so I, I employ humor all the time and, and, you know, we're humans. And, and so that's a natural part of, of what we are. Uh, humor is, I, you know, I, I, I maybe can understand Roddenberry's view that, 
this is a a series, um, uh, a work, you know, I mean, he, he's looking at it as a larger thing rather than just a series of episodes. He, he sees this as, you know, life work and, and, and more than just a television program. And so is concerned that network executives perhaps aren't thinking this. And, and that's his concern that, you know, they're going to see this as a comedy and then we have, have issues. But, you know, life has comic elements as well. And so I think it's important to depict those aspects of, of humanity yeah. in, in fiction, science fiction and, and, and science. And so, you know, I would have, had I been there and, and been able to talk to him, I would have taken issue with that because again, this shows that, you know, it's, it's not natural to be serious a hundred percent of the time. Oh. Right. And so these things happen and I think it was done really well. If you portray Science, I think this is something that you can run into is like what it means to be a scientist, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Generally, our social, socially accepted, you know, what it means to be an astrophysicist is someone who's serious. It's very similar to what we expect from doctors, right? We expect you to fit this mold. Um, do you do you see people resisting against that? Is there a change in the scientific community? Are people becoming, are, peop, are there scientists out there who are kind of challenging what it typically means to be a scientist? Well, I don't know if I would, I would say that. I, I mean, I think, I think humor is 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 always there you you know the the seriousness of of what we do is uh, from a philosophical perspective you say well you know astrophysics f of course is uh, you know we're advancing human knowledge and we're understanding how the universe works and how nature works and you know that's serious but but you don't have to be serious all the time and so you know, and again, we're humans. So I see a lot of humor in, in what we do. And, you know, frankly, the scientific method is one where we are trying to uh, tear down our ideas, hmm. right? So the, the pure scientific method wants us to uh, try to eliminate guesses at the right answer rather than prove them. Hmm. Uh, because there are all sorts of uh, human cognition problems with, with attempting to prove something right. So the scientific method wants us to, to, to do something negative, right? And, and to maybe not disprove, but try to, uh, to tear down someone else's idea. And so that can be really quite intense, right? When you're going after a, a colleague and, and you say, no, your idea is wrong. And, and yeah. here, here, here's a tweak to that, or I'm going to change it. And, and, you know, people get invested and it's a very difficult thing to do because it's, it goes against human nature. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the mind that, uh, that humor in those situations are, are really quite important. That's a really good point. It's really hard not to associate yourself with your findings, mm -hmm. when in fact the point is to disprove what you're thinking, right? It requires a maybe a little bit of a dichotomy in your brain. You're listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. I'm Cameron Kitt. I'm the host of this year program where we talk about science fiction and film. And I'm very lucky to be joined today by Dr. Joe Pesh, who from the National Science Foundation, an astrophysicist and an astronomy teacher. We're talking about the classic episode of Star Trek called The Trouble with Tribbles. They seem to be gorged. Gorged? On my grain? Kirk, I am going to hold you responsible. There must be thousands of them. Hundreds of thousands. 1,771,561. 
That's assuming one triple, multiplying with an average litter of 10, producing a new generation every 12 hours over a period of three days. Okay, let's talk triples. Mm. <laughs> I need to talk triples. I really like this quote. So it blows my mind that um, David Gerald wrote this when he was 23. And this is his first script that he sold. And it comes from a personal place, somebody who raised a lot of pets as a kid, but also, quote, all of those critters died on me. So also came from a kind of scary place. But his his original concept, I think, is so interesting. His concept is aliens are always scary. What if they were cute, but we don't realize they're dangerous? Um, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, you know, in the Star Trek universe, we see mostly humanoid mm-hmm. aliens. And, mm-hmm. and of course, there was... I, I'm not a filmmaker uh, compared to many of, of your other guests here. So, so I can't speak to that directly. But... Uh, but I believe the reason was for budgetary purposes, right? It's easy yep. to, to, to make humanoid. <laughs> now, having said that, uh, not my field, but but we we dabble in this in, in astrophysics that, you know, if there were aliens, intelligent aliens, species, uh, they might be humanoid for a number of biological reasons. Okay, that aside, uh, we don't see many non-human aliens in, in Star Trek. We do. There, there are, and, and those are some of the, my, my favorite episodes. Yeah, the Horda. The Horda, exactly, yeah. yes. Uh, the Gorn, yep. right? Uh, and, and the Tribble, of course. And so, you know, it's nice to see those. And, and to your point, yes, they look lovely. Uh, they bring love, as, as many of the characters in this episode point out. Uh, <laughs> And, and yet they're uh, extremely dangerous, right? Yes. And uh, they, they uh, increase, they, they multiply uh, exponentially and, and even more so, in fact. And, and they destroyed the, the important grain that was, uh, you know, going to this important planet. Yeah, and there's spoiler alerts around that. But I think that there's something really interesting about experimenting with this concept of kind of an unseen or unexpected danger, Mm -hmm. right? This thing, like something cute that could be dangerous. It's just, I think that's a part of the reason why the episode is so iconic is you love them. Like everyone wants a Tribble. Um, I do love that they like didn't seem to put any weight in them. Like they're clearly made of fluff because of the way they're handled. Like people are throwing them around. Like (laughs) the way that they were moved Mm. is... A battery-powered dog. They tried to use battery-powered dogs. They stripped it down and and put fur on top of that. So some of them move a little bit, but they were very loud. My favorite fact about the Tribbles is that the noises they make are a mix of dove coos, owl screech, screech owl cries, and escaping air from balloons. Mm, <laughs> so <yes. laughs> like cute and a little scary. Um, tell me a little bit about what you remember when you saw this episode the first time. Oh, that was, that was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> I, again, I think... I th- I think I've focused on that on that scene on the fight scene with with Scotty. I think that was really what what kind of brought it home to me. Hmm. In that yes, this epitomizes that that nerdy guy who uh, you know doesn't care uh... about about humans necessarily, right? But he does, of course. He's 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 very he's very human, and he cares about relationships. But it's the, the ship is more important. And, and so, and you know, what, what also is, is obvious, uh, or was obvious to me is that the ship is the love of Captain Kirk as well. And, you know, he, he, he's a womanizer. We, we, I think we can say he, he goes around and, 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 uh, is, is active in that regard, (laughs) but the ship is his first love. Yes. And he abandons everything, human uh, love, in essence, for the ship. 
And one could argue that that's the same for Scotty too, although we don't see that developed much. Yeah. But, but of course, it, it, it comes to the fore in this episode, right? You know, the fight, fights are not uncommon in Star Trek. Yes. They're just normally helmed by Captain Kirk. So yes, yes, that's right. we're used to seeing him throwing the punches instead of... We don't see Scotty throwing quite as much. Like he, there's not as much coverage as I'd like. But again, you, when you watch these shows, you're, you have to be forgiving. You know, these shows are coming up on 60 years old. Yes. And the fact that it's really about the story that holds true is the same way you forgive things in the Twilight Zone. Um, can you tell me how Star Trek impacted your choice to work in this field and just overall how it's impacted the field that you work in? So science fiction in general, I think, has been a big motivator, and, and certainly in particular Star Trek. Uh, just just that vision of the future and that, you know, you can travel to astronomical objects and, and study them. And, uh, you know, uh, George Takei's character, Sulu, mm -hmm. is helmsman, but of course he's an astrophysicist. And so that is not obvious in the episodes, but it's known. And, and I think that was, that was a, uh, a spur as well for me mm -hmm. uh, that, Hey, you know, this is astronomers can, can be involved and, and do this work as well. But it was, it was basically just an exploration, right? And, and that's what astronomy is. It's an exploration of the universe. We are, we are a science that is still, uh, in discovery space. Yeah. There's lots to be discovered yet. In fact, you know, we, whenever we make a discovery, we realize that we know less than, than, uh, uh, after the discovery than we did before. I love that feeling. Exactly. There's something thrilling about that feeling, exactly. as sad as it is, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, in, in, in some senses it's, it's job security, right? There, there'll, <laughs> there'll always be a, uh, a need for this, but, but, but no, in, in, in all seriousness, uh, it's, it's just the nature of, of the field, right? Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it, it's probably the oldest science that humans conduct if you look at it in the sense that humans can look up and, and wonder about the stars, right? So we've been doing this since... since probably since before we were human. Exactly, exactly. And so in some senses, that's, you know, astronomy is the oldest science. In other senses, it really requires technology that we've you know, had available for the last 50 years or so. Not that there weren't discoveries that were made before that, but, but really this golden period of astronomy is in the last 50 years. And it's, it's uh, corresponded to, to Star Trek. And so again, it's that exploration element that was important for me, I think, as a, as a young boy watching this and, and kind of dreaming about what it would be like to, to, to be a practicing astronomer. Yeah, the, it's it's the next step of exploration, right? It, it it seems kind of obvious that that's our goal, but I think it's really important to have a very fleshed out representation of what would be a good idealized version, more or less. Um, I find, yeah, the positivity of it and the concept that anyone could work hard. You know, it's very different from the other Star franchise. Um, where you just happen to be gifted with godlike abilities, right? Nobody here is gifted with godlike abilities except maybe Spock. Um, it's it's all it's all about teamwork and and wits and you know your human, uh, I guess, thinking abilities. Back to your point that you made, the job security one. Can you give me an example of a discovery that was made? I mean, you oversee five different facilities. Some amazing discoveries have been made in the last five years that ended up posing more questions than it answered. Well, I think everything that we look at. So some some of the, the findings in, in the last year or so uh, that are along this, most obviously in, in, in this sense, 
are observations from early in the history of the universe. And we now have the capability with, with our telescopes and instruments where we can go back, we, we can see objects, so we can go back, because remember astronomy is a time machine, right? Everything we observe in an astronomical sense is, yep. is from the past of, in some sense, in one way or another. And so uh, observations in the last couple of years from objects that are, oh, four, five, six hundred million years after the Big Bang. Uh, and I'm talking about galaxies and supermassive black holes. We're now able to observe these objects with our new instruments and, and observatories, and we're finding uh, very large galaxies that are forming stars at a tremendous rate in a, in a, in a way that we didn't expect. That is, that they're bigger and they're forming more stars than we had expected at that point in the universe. Which is like, what, a third of the way through to where we are now, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yes, even even, even, even right. less. Oh, yeah, so like toddler, early childhood age, we weren't expecting to be that many stars that early. Interesting. Yes, that's right. And uh, Well, and, and so the galaxy itself being as, as big uh, as it is. So that's one finding. And another finding is these supermassive black holes, and by supermassive I mean black holes that have millions and billions of times the mass of the sun. Uh, we see them today in the centers of almost every galaxy. Yep. Our galaxy has one and, yep. and, and elsewhere. And so we, we know that you know they were there in the early days, but we're finding very large supermassive black holes very early on in, in the age of the universe, in its infancy. Oh, and, and the question is, how could stars have gotten to the point to form them that early? It, well, yeah, or or how did they form? How did how did they uh, how did they form at all at that at in that size? Oh, so, yeah, because the know, traditional belief is it's a collapse of a star that causes one, but they're saying the question is, are there different ways that they could be formed? Yes, interesting. And so this is a thing where you know we we'd never been able to observe that era in the universe, mm. and now that we are, we're finding surprising results. Hmm. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean we're wrong. It just means that we had a fuzzy view before and now we have a clear view. And so we need to, you know, tweak our understanding. And that's, again, that's how science works. So I think that that kind of epitomizes, you know, what's going on. We know that there's something there. We, we, we know that there are supermassive black holes there. It's just that they're not exactly as we expect them. So now we have to refine our understanding. Sometimes you refine and sometimes you are subject to a paradigm shift, though. Mm -hmm. and those are not fun, but they're also kind of cool, right? So, like, there's this, there's kind of like this, always this looming, the uh, kind of like hanging sword, right? That at any given moment, a discovery could come that reshapes everything we know. I, I came yes. to a panel that you hosted about dark energy and dark matter. That's where it's like... <laughs> Whatever we discover that makes sense of this will probably have dramatic implications for a lot of how we understand the rest of science, right? Yes. Um, yes, that's right. But we want that. that that's right. Uh, you know, at the human level, it's very difficult, right? As, as I said earlier, uh, you know, I, I come up with an explanation for something and, and I kind of like that explanation. And yeah, from the intellectual scientific perspective, I understand that, you know, my colleagues and, 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 and myself are, are going to try to break that down, right? And when, when that explanation resists those attempts, then you kind of, you know, inwardly cheer that, yeah, you got uh, it right. Uh, and that you're smart. <laughs> well, 
Maybe, but you know, <laughs> you become invested in this, and it's, it's it's your baby, right? And and usually, uh, you find you're wrong, and and that's the way things go. And and usually, the wrongness is just a small amount. And so, you know, okay, I was wrong a little bit. I'm going to tweak it now, and so now I've refined my view. But every once in a while, as you point out, there's a paradigm shift where, hey, you know, our understanding of this particular law of nature is completely wrong if that observation uh, is is uh, is proven. We're kind of overdue for one, aren't we? Yeah, maybe, yes. And, <laughs> and you know, that's this discovery space that we're pushing the frontiers in, in astrophysics, again, with new uh, next-generation instruments. Um, you know, it could, it could come at any time, right? Um, you make a new observation tonight with a new instrument, and lo and behold, there's something that you've never seen before. So, of course, everybody's getting hyped up about the James Webb telescope, mm-hmm. but you oversee a lot of arrays, right, that are Earth-based telescopes. Yes, that's right. Can you describe really briefly what your job is at the NSF, what you do? So, so I'm, a, I'm, I'm the, the, uh, the bureaucrat that is on the trouble with tribbles complaining to, <laughs> uh, you know, to my observatory director about, about not doing what I've asked them to do. But no, that's, that's not true. Um, I, I am the bureaucrat. But so I, we at the National Science Foundation, we fund uh, basic research, and in this case, uh, astronomy, as well as observatories. Uh, so ground-based optical and radio observatories. I'm responsible for a large portion of our radio portfolio. And so we fund uh, an entity to operate and maintain and do the day-to-day activity of the observatory such that any uh, anybody, uh, primarily researchers, of course, can apply for time in a merit review uh, process and propose to take observations on those telescopes on, at those observatories. And if they're meritorious, they go through a, a selection process to have their proposal. They write a proposal and then the proposal is reviewed. And if they're meritorious, then they get observing time at the observatory uh, for free. And that's kind of the, the contract that, that we provide. Wait, 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 for free? Yes. So, oh. so, so we, as the National Science Foundation, it's tax dollars, right? Tax That's dollars, what makes yes. it free. Okay. So, so we we fund it on the day to day basis, and then the individual coming in, who gets observing time, gets that observing time uh, for free. They go back to their office and they analyze it and make discoveries. So, my favorite movie of all time is Contact, mm, yes. and I. I realized just now you're David Drumlin. You're the character who is anti-SETI, right? Who's saying, you don't need more telescope time to look for aliens, right? That's that's kind of what you... But I'm sure your job is a lot different from that. Although I imagine there's got to be people get, asking for SETI time. I, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about that. Um, but that is a really interesting thing. And if people are interested, like me, who are maybe more layman, sci-fi fans, um, astronomy fans, is there anything we can do to support that work? Is it just researching it, keeping up with it? Like, what can we do to get more involved? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, and, and, and just, just following what's being done, right? And, and so uh, it's important that what is being done doesn't just go into, you know, libraries or, or the internet and, and is never seen again, because this is, this is uh, expansion of, of human knowledge. And mm. it may not, in astronomy, it may not seem uh, like there's a, uh, an immediate benefit because astronomy as a basic science, it might take 20 or 30 or 50 years for the discoveries that are made in astronomy 
that underpin the laws of nature, say, um, work their way out into a device that you have, you know, on, in the table on the table in front of you, uh, because that's not what we do. We're not we're not bending metal and and making. Uh, uh, integrated circuits that go into the next generation of smartphone or whatever. But our observations are underpinning our knowledge of the laws of nature that are used to, to make those devices. Yeah. And so again, in, in 20 or 30 years, the discoveries that, that our researchers are, are making at our facilities may find them their way in, into society. In addition to just building up that knowledge of understanding of the universe around us, right, which I think has utility. Yeah, and on a personal note, I think it's almost absurd to expect some kind of utilitarian response from this work when we clearly know virtually nothing about our universe. <laughs> like, it's like expecting, uh, no offense to us as a humanity, but it's like expecting a four-year-old to contribute to the household income. You know, why we don't even know how to, like, fully grasp most of what's out there. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. It's just so cool. Um, I have one more question that, um, that's kind of trying to bring it back towards Star Trek a little bit, which is, you know... Inherently, I think a lot of um, work that we've done, I mean, cell phones is one thing we can thank Star Trek for. It, it's kind of working us towards that. Do you know of any astronomical research that's happening that is kind of pushing us closer with the hopes of pushing us closer to that Star Trek world? So uh, technology developed for our instruments is because these instruments, the, the observatories are operating at the cutting edge of, of techn technological advances. So certainly the technology that is being developed to make the observations is, is pushing, pushing the frontier. Um, cool. you, you know, you, you, you mentioned, you mentioned the, the smartphone. Uh, I, I will take credit in the, in the collective sense that the camera, the recording device in the camera in, in your smartphone and in every camera that is, is being used now, the charged couple device, the CCD, is an astronomical invention. Huh. And so there, there are very few things that, that we can point to, we astronomers can point to and say, hey, that was, that was developed in astronomy and now it's in, it's in you know, the, the broader community. But uh, charged couple devices, CCDs, are, are one of those. Cool. And yeah, so without astronomical uh, development, te technological development, we, we, may, we may have had a, a CCD, but it would have come much, much later. And I was fortunate, I guess one could say, that I was kind of on that, the cusp between the old ways of doing things with, with photographic uh, glass plates and uh, the CCD cameras, and, and they were game-changing for astronomy. Really? They're game-changing for society, of course, but uh, <laughs> the CCDs that we have in our smartphones today are, are significantly more advanced than the early ones that we were using in astronomy. I mean, I remember the day I realized my, my smartphone had just as good a quality as my DSLR camera back in the day. Yes. Um, so yeah, the phone that you use to take pictures of your dog, uh, most likely the camera was the result of uh, astronomical research. Yes, that's right. Just for a little bit more clarity, you know, ALMA and these big arrays, some, some of the things that were discovered using such similar equipment would be that famous picture of the black hole. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah, the Event Horizon uh, telescope image of uh, the black hole in M87, yes. So you hope for kind of big PR bust in stories like that, right, as much as you can. Um, but it, I think what I'm hearing from you, Dr. Joe, is it's kind of one thing that you can do as a citizen scientist is help spread the word of this, of interesting discoveries and help make it more aware to the rest of the audience without waiting for CBS to do it, right? Yes, that's correct. And, okay. and you know, for 
for for the listeners who are inter- who are interested, I think just being interested in astronomy is is the important thing, and um, you know paying attention and uh, understanding to the extent possible what what's happening, uh, and you know the onus is on us to to translate that. Uh, but you know having an interest in understanding what's going on is really what's the the groundswell of support for for the science and. And, and science is important in general, and I think astronomy is in particular. Absolutely. You mentioned once when we talked before, it's kind of a gateway science. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot, mm-hmm. right? Um, it pulls you in, and then once we got you, you start maybe being interested in other things. You're listening to They Came From Outer Space, here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. I'm Cameron Kitt here with Dr. Joe Pesh talking about the episode that is so classic in everyone's mind. The Trouble with Tribbles is an episode of Star Trek, the original series aired in 1967. So coming back to the episode, we have um, some time left. Dr. Joe, what, what else, what other insights do you want to share as a hardcore Trekkie about this episode? Uh, so, you know, it's it's this, uh, the the... the when you're viewing this episode uh, in particular, but Star Trek in, in, in general, you know, think about how advanced uh, this programming is for the mid-60s, the, the late 60s. Oh, I know. Like, first interracial kiss had to be, it wasn't even shown in Alabama. Yeah. Well, on this episode, right, is one of the first uses of the word pregnant. That blows my mind. Yes. I just can't. I can't grasp why the word pregnant is a bad word. <laughs> yeah, luckily they got away with it because they're talking about pregnant bisexual triples. <laughs> and before you used to have to use the word expecting. Yes. Right? Yes, that's right. So funny. So, so you know, th- there's that sort of thing. Uh, the colors, y- you know, th- this episode is is getting near the, the period where the... the there's the strong, brilliant colors of the sets. Oh, the beautiful the colors. Light and the lighting, yes. The brilliant violets behind the uh, the bureaucrats. Just, the, yeah, the color of their... They're using Technicolor. Yes. You know, yes. as much as possible. But, but you know what the... And I don't know if this is true or not, but, but the story is that RCA, um, who were behind Star Trek, right? They were coming out with their first color television sets. And they wanted... Uh, an, an example of a, of a television program that would uh, would show the benefit of of color TV. I don't know if that's I don't know if that's true or not. We hear that definitely story. feels like there was some influence saying more color, more vibrancy. But I, I'm I'm happy for it. Yes, you yes. know, you don't want a washed out future. A bright, vibrant, colorful future seems. All of these things are kind of circling back to what makes Star Trek so exciting and yes. for me so I don't know tempting. Right? I want. I, of course, the more you watch it, all I think about is like I want to go to Starfleet. Yes. I want to. I want to. I want to participate. I don't care if I'm a red shirt. I'll do it. I'll do whatever. <laughs> I'll happily participate. Yeah. As a Trekkie, um, did you ever do anything like write letters or go to cons? You know, did you? Okay. How, like, how yeah, have you, how have you kind of like lived your Trekkie fandom? Well, so in, in, internally, and in becoming a uh, you know deep experience with with the with the series, uh, a lot of that knowledge has has been lost to the mists of time now, sadly. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's the advent of the internet; it makes it easy to you right. know, offload right, right. offload memories. But yeah, conventions, early early conventions. Uh, I was thinking about that coming coming into the studio. Didn't have um, 
cosplay in those days. And so it was more kind of a state event where, you know, you'd have a three-day convention and, and the big names would come out and give an, an hour lecture and then they'd stay, hang around for an hour or two afterwards and, and sign autographs. Uh, and you didn't have to pay extra for them. So that's a, that's a, a nice, nice thing that's, that's <laughs> no longer the case. You trade off the ability to dress up for the cost of, of signing, getting signed autographs. Yes, exactly. What were those early conventions like for you? Uh, just really quite amazing. And, and you know, you, you look up to the, the actors. So I, I, I didn't collect comic books and, and paraphernalia. And at the conventions, that was really a lot of what it was. It was oh, they were okay. basically, uh, you know, comic book uh, conventions, in essence, with a Star Trek flavor. Um, but, you know, the, here are these stars that are my idols. And so just going, going for that was, was really what, what made it for me. And hearing them talk about, uh, you know, their, their roles and, and the importance uh, it was to them. Of course, many of those actors didn't realize, you know, what, what they were creating when they were doing that. And I think that's common, right? Yeah, it's really common. I mean, it, it leads back to the fact that, you know, a lot of the acting is good. You mentioned how good the side characters are. Mm. A lot of that was because they were able to pull big actors of the day to come in for these bit parts who would just elevate the quality of the show a lot. But there was a, I can't remember which actor he showed up to an event and everyone kept referring to him as his character name. And he was like, who, <laughs> what? Like he had completely forgotten the experience of yes. recording Star Trek. And I think that just kind of represents the, I guess how underwhelmed or how, how much, how little was expected of it from the studios or from the mainstream and how wrong they were. Right. Wasn't there a letter writing campaign to bring the show back yes. or something? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and it's and it's it's one of the franchises that I'm not sad about continuing. You know, we live in a world where almost everything has to be an existing franchise for it to be made. And like I see the new Nickelodeon Star Trek Discovery, and all I can think is, yes, like this is a franchise we need to have as much of as possible. Um, where do you feel like the other Star Trek, uh, I guess, versions mm -hmm. stand? You know, do you have a ranking? Uh, yeah, I think so. I again, I like them all. Right. Um, for me that they're they the, the original series is is the epitome of of Star Trek uh, for others that's that's not the case but but certainly it is for me partly because you know maybe there are uh, better episodes in, in in other series than some of those that were in the original series but it's more than that it's emotional for me right yeah. so so that's why I come back to that uh, I like Voyager Love Voyager. Janeway yep. fan here. Yes, yes. Seriously. Yeah, I really uh, like Voyager a lot. Uh, Enterprise, I have to say, I'm, I'm really quite... Oh, good. You like it? Yeah, I do. Yes. All right, everybody, you heard it from the mouth of an <laughs> astrophysicist. All right, I got two more questions for you before we wrap up, and okay. it's more kind of generalized. Um, actually, it's a few questions. Darn. Um, okay, what can you tell... This is kind of a two-parter. Looking at this episode... What can you recommend that filmmakers take away from this episode from an outside perspective? Like, what can we do? And then as a scientist, what tips do you have for filmmakers and maybe sci-fi writers? Hmm. So the first one is, is difficult. I think, uh, you know, when you look at a, at a television series or a, uh, a movie, uh, 
a show, you know, what is it that makes it successful? And I've, I've, this is something that's, that's been interesting to me. What, why, you know, why is uh, Series X successful? Why is Star Trek successful? Why is Squid Game successful? Yeah. Yeah. And well, I may, that might not fall into my category, but, but. It's not it, in your category. You're right. I'm just talking about like, things that just blow up, right? Right, Phenomenons. Right. But and you know you look at it and I I for me I think it's the the interplay with the actors, mm. and so both the development of the characters, but also the interpersonal relationships that are written in right in the fictional component, um, but also that are there. Whether those actors really like each other or not, mm. they can put that aside and 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 they come across uh, as you know as old friends. And I don't know if that's a that's a bias on my part, but when I look at programs that, that I've liked over the years, whether they're science fiction or not, that seems to be the common underlying thing. And it's like, wow, look at that, you know, look at the chemistry between those individuals and, and you know, that's really what's made it. Uh, and I'm not talking about things that, that I like that nobody else does because there are some of those as well. <laughs> These are, you know, things that are generally accepted as being... Uh, successful. Well, now I want to know. <laughs> no, we your, won't go down that path. random stuff is. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think spending time on developing those characters in the mm. fictional sense, but then also getting getting people to work together as as humans and on, on the actor side, I think that's a that's a useful thing to do. Um, and then science. So science fiction is not science, right? And we can bend the rules of nature a little bit, and and that's fine because it's science fiction, and, and people accept that. Um, I, as a scientist, I like to see uh, honing as close as possible to uh, to things that are that are uh, legitimately uh, possible, right? Okay, so, so hard sci-fi. Yeah. Okay. And and again, you know, I, I'm I'm willing to to let some of that slide, but but I think I think that's a useful thing to do, and I think that's useful from a societal perspective as well, because you're not getting into. I mean, there's place for fantasy, and there's place for you know magic appearing in 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 science fiction, and and that's fine as long as it's clear that that's the case. But you know, it's that um, the slow degradation of of how how the universe works. Uh, uh, in a science fiction series that that can be problematic, I think, and so and pull yeah. you out of it. Yeah. Just for those listening, hard sci-fi would be like The Martian, and mm-hmm. soft sci-fi would be something like Star Wars, right? Where there's lightsabers and maybe more fantastical creatures. Basically, there's magic kind of in Star Wars, and there just happens to be spaceships. Yes. Um, would you recommend reaching out to scientists to review your work? Uh, yeah, that can be a useful thing to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you said anyone can apply for time at the array. It's really unlikely that someone without any kind of training or a degree would get approved for that, though, right? Well, so it's it's merit merit based, and it depends on the science that you're proposing. So yeah, if you didn't if you didn't understand the underlying science, and it's not just a hey, I I want to look at stars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to have a, obviously you have to have a justification for the time that you're asking, but but you know it's possible, and so yes, indeed, that's. Uh, well, I'm really pleased to know that, you know, that there's that there's people out there who are working to kind of increase our understanding of where we started, right? Um, Dr. Joe Pesh, where can we find more of your work and where would you like us to look for anyone listening? Oh, interesting. Uh, so, you know, NSF uh, is at NSF.gov. Okay. And, uh, and yeah, um, 
you know, you can find out about all the fantastic stuff that's being done in science uh, at the National Science Foundation from anthropology to zoology and everything in between, including astronomy. Awesome. Well, uh, you can also find episodes of Star Trek on the internet. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. I think I found I found these episodes on, on Amazon Prime if you're interested in looking. Thank you for listening to another episode of They Came From Outer Space. I'm Cameron Kitt. I've been joined by Dr. Joe Pesh of the National Science Foundation. And uh, you've been listening to WIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. Dr. Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Cameron. <laughs>